You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, we're starting a new series in the book of Acts. So if you'd like to read along, you want to open up your app or open up your Bible, we are going to be in Acts uh, chapter 13. If you want to start making your way there, it's on page 979 in one of those pew Bibles somewhere nearby. I'd like to start with the reading of God's Word, Acts 13, 1 through 12. That's what we're going to be exploring today and hearing from the Lord. So let's give our attention to what God has for us from His Word. Acts 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the church, excuse me, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and turned uh, excuse me, and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elimus and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately, a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then, uh, when he had saw what happened, the proconsul believed, because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. And ask for his help in seeing and hearing from him this morning. Lord, as we hear from your word, we seek to hear from you. Guide and move us in our thoughts and in our hearts. Stir in us what it is you would have us to see and hear and do. Lord, edify us and grow us. And God, as I preach this, I'm just asking for your assistance and your help that it would be right and clear. And God, I am pleading that you would move and stir in souls and that your kingdom would be advanced through us because of our attentiveness to the word that you have for us. So thank you, Lord. I ask that you would bless us by this word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting a new series in the book of Acts, and it's called When the Gospel Goes. And it's going to run from chapter 13 through Acts 20, and I can already hear some of you asking, grumbling, having some issue, you're saying, why? Why, Pastor Brian, why in the world would you start in the middle of the book? Why not start at the first verse and work to the last verse? Now, I assure you, there is some method behind this madness. All right, so over the next 
two years, we're actually going to go through the whole book of Acts with some breaks. We're taking it in pieces so it kind of rightly fits where we're at. So this time next year, God willing, we're going to cover Acts 1 through 12 in a series called The Seeds of the Church, kind of how things got going. And then in the fall of 2025, we're going to finish up with Acts 21 through 28 in a series called The Gospel on Trial. But you're still wondering, why did you start in the middle? Why not just do the other part first? Well, that's because Pastor Josiah and I and Robbie, we've been in prayer for a few weeks. We've been working through this, and God has laid it on our hearts that we as a church need to be thinking about God and His mission as it goes outside the walls of this building, as it it goes out there. We need to be equipped for that mission. And you say, why? I mean, why? Let's Let's just handle what's in here. Let's just do this. Well, here's why. Because our community is in a very precarious time. There's a lot going on in the world that is causing people to seek truth. And they're seeking and they're only finding shifting sand. Right? This includes many of our family members, many of our neighbors, many of our co-workers, many of our friends. And therefore, I believe God's word in the middle of the book of Acts is exactly what our church needs to hear and be equipped to go out in these strange, difficult last days and proclaim and herald the word of the Lord. Okay, but don't worry. We do have a plan to get through the whole book. So if you're, you know, taking notes and you're just concerned that it starts on Acts 13, just come back next week and it'll just be like we've been in it for a long time and it won't matter, right? We're going to be okay. But today, today, I want you to be encouraged that God's word and his work in the world is still alive and active. It's doing things. The Holy Spirit equips and sends those he calls. And we're going to see that from the account that we're going to read about and what was happening in the church in Antioch, this little town halfway around the world, 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago. What was going on there? Well, that's going to speak to what can be going on right here in Bountiful, Utah. That's what I hope we see. So I'm going to take this in two parts. From what I read, we're going to take it in two parts. First, I want us to see how God is preparing and sending his called missionaries. There was a sense of preparation and sending and what that might mean for us. And then we're going to see what that kind of looked like as it got started because it's hard work. There's opposition and there's problems and what that might mean for even missionaries today because I don't think any of this stuff has changed. I don't think it's any different then than it is now. So we're going to look at that. Let's start right now with Acts verse 13, excuse me, verse 1, Acts 13, verse 1. It says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Before we even jump in to see who these five men were, we, I mean, Luke has given us a remarkable picture of some things here. Luke is the one who wrote this book. Before we even go and look at that, we need to understand what's going on with this church. What is the deal with this little church in Antioch? So look back over to uh, chapter 11. I just want to read verses 19 through 20. And at the time, some history here, God has called his people to go out into all the world and share the gospel, and they hadn't. <clears throat> And so there was just the church in Jerusalem. Verse 19 says, Now those 
who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, they made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, make a note of that, and Antioch, speaking a word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. How about that? When these religious leaders stoned Stephen for proclaiming the gospel, they killed him. They didn't want that message to go out. It scattered the people because of religious persecution in Jerusalem, and out they go. They tried to silence the gospel, and yet they actually sent it out. Talk about uh, not seeing the consequences of their actions. They scattered these people, it says, to a few places. Phoenicia is this 150-mile long sort of banana-shaped region along the coast north of Galilee. It's a whole big region, and that's where they went. And Cyprus, they went there. That's this big island kind of on the northeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. I've been there. It's beautiful. Antioch is a city about 350 miles north of Jerusalem. That's where they went. But it says that the Christians, when they, they scattered, they only talked to Jews. That, that's all they did, except for, praise the Lord, some of them from, and here this, Cyprus and Cyrene. They came to Antioch. Those ones. They aren't even named. We don't know who they were, but those ones started talking to Greeks, and it's as they proclaimed the good news about the Lord Jesus to Greeks. Praise the Lord for those guys and ladies, probably. Praise the Lord for them. It's interesting to me that they didn't go back to where they were from. It lists where they were from, but they didn't go back there. Cyprus, that's the island in the Mediterranean Sea. They didn't go back there. Cyrene, where's that? That's in North Africa. It's actually a long ways away. It's sort of on this big tip, this horn in Libya, modern-day Libya. So it was in North Africa, about 775 miles by boat, ship, across the Mediterranean. They didn't go back there. They didn't go back to Cyprus. They didn't go back to Cyrene. Acts 11.21 says that a large number of people turned to the Lord. That's because maybe God had a plan for them. God sent them up to a place they weren't from, Antioch where a large number heard. And all these disciples start gathering. They want to learn more about Jesus. They start coming together. They're gathering together. And they start worshiping the Lord in Antioch. And they form a gathering, a church, to praise the Lord and learn about Him. This is what biblical church planting looks like. Gathering a group of newly made disciples into a church in a place where they didn't have a church. These people planted a church. It's fantastic. Right? But the news of this new church eventually reaches Jerusalem where the apostles are because they hadn't left. So they send this brother named Barnabas up to check it out. Like, we heard there's, a ch there's a, some church gathering up there. <clears throat> Gentiles and a bunch of like, go check it out. So he heads on up, makes the 350-mile journey. He gets up there, and what does he find? A whole bunch of new converts who need to be discipled, and they need a bunch of help. So he's like, hey, I know a guy. This guy who's been in Tarshish for, for nine years studying and learning, he would be great. So Barnabas goes and gets this guy named Saul, brings him from 
Tarsus to help him to teach these people in the new church. And then Acts 11.26 says, Barnabas and Saul stayed in Antioch for a full year, meeting with the new church and teaching these large numbers. So as a year goes by, they're equipping them, they're preparing them. So now we know a little bit about this church. This is how the church started. God had it all providentially worked out. Now let's turn our attention to these five men that Luke has listed for us. Right, first, right off the bat, there's a really good reason to believe that these guys, just because of the way they're listed and what we see them doing, uh, there's a really good reason to believe that they were likely the leaders or some of the leaders in the church. And they were probably elders, right? Caring and shepherding and pastoring and discipling in this church. Let's look at these five leaders. Let's start with Barnabas. <clears throat> That's where Luke starts. Let's start with Barnabas. According to Acts 4.36, his name was not Barnabas. His name was actually Joseph. But they called him Barnabas. That was the name he went by, which means son of encouragement, which is a great name, son of encouragement. He was born, get this, on the island of Cyprus. Oh, how great. He was an early member in the church in Jerusalem. It says he sold a piece of property. He gave all the money to the church, so he's generous. He's supporting the work, really supporting the work. He had a nephew. His nephew's name was John Mark, which we're going to see more in a minute. John Mark was the guy who ended up writing the Gospel of Mark. Now, that hadn't happened yet at the time we were reading, but that's what this nephew is going to eventually end up doing. And there's one more thing about Barnabas that is really amazing, but I want to hold on to that for a minute until we learn more about this guy, Saul. So let's turn our attention now to Saul. Saul, who according to Acts 13.9 that we read, was also called Paul. Saul and Paul, his name shifts, and then pretty much moving forward, we'll just hear him as Paul. Eventually, Paul would write more of the New Testament than any other human author who was involved in God working through the author to write our New Testament. He was very influential in sharing the word, but that's not where Paul started. He did not start in that place. Saul was a highly trained Pharisee a religious leader, the one, that, the group that fought with Jesus all the time. He was super highly trained uh, as a Pharisee. In fact, he was trained up in the Top Gun Pharisee school uh, as a rabbi. So he was a top rabbi, big deal. And, uh, and he was young and he was learning and he was growing. And we, earlier on, we read that he was present when Stephen was stoned to death. Stephen's proclaiming the gospel. The religious leaders get mad, the Pharisees, in fact, and they stone this guy to death to stop the preaching of the gospel, and Saul was there. Saul had their coats, and while he was there, he realized something. But man, I could really make a name for myself persecuting these Christians. Man, I could really, I could really do something here. So he devoted his life to having Christians arrested. He had to hunt them down, and he became the most feared Christian persecuting hunter of the day. He was certainly involved in their arrests, and most likely involved in their deaths, those who were killed. He was a persecutor of Christians. But then Jesus gets a hold of this guy. Jesus shows up, calls this guy out, and says, why are you persecuting me? And he goes blind for a time, and all this crazy stuff happens, and Jesus says, I have a different job for you. I'm going to take all that you are and all that you have, I'm going to flip the script on you, and now you're going to be the guy who's going to preach the gospel to the whole world. Flipped Paul's life completely upside down. Now, let's go back to Barnabas for a second. I told you there's something really cool about Barnabas. Check this out. 
As a new Christian, after Saul, the Christian hunter, the persecutor, was converted, um, he decided he should probably go to Jerusalem, where the church was. He should probably go meet the apostles. He should probably get involved, right? And uh, it didn't go so well because he was Saul, the Christian persecutor, the hunter. They're all probably thinking, it's a trap. I don't know if we can trust that guy, right? And that's totally reasonable. I don't know if we would trust him. I'm remembering, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I remember how skeptical I was. I don't know if you remember when this happened. But there was this guy from a death metal, man, death metal band named Korn. He was like this hardcore, scary-looking rock and roll guy that became a Christian. And I was like, I don't know about that. Like, he's creepy and crazy and, and left the band. And it's whole, I mean, amazing. But when that happened, I was kind of skeptical. Or... Um, or maybe recently, not too recently, but Costi Hinn, the, the nephew with Benny Hinn, the false prophet and false teacher, like he converted and became a Christian. Now he's, I mean, amazingly serving God. Or there's this comedian that I used to watch. I still watch once in a while named J.P. Sears. I always made jokes about like spiritualism. Well, he got saved last year. And I, I, when this stuff happens, you see other celebrities, other people are like, eh, I don't know. Let's see how it plays out. We're really skeptical. Okay, none of those guys we're hunting down and killing Christians beforehand. So now, how would we feel if we learned that the, the Christian hunter switched sides? Well, I think we'd be a little bit afraid. Yet, yet in Acts 9.27, it says, Barnabas, however, took him, this Christian hunter Saul, Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord. Barnabas vouched for Saul. Barnabas, Barnabas got to know him and, and put his life maybe in jeopardy to get to know him and then say, no, we can trust this guy. This guy's good. Barnabas cared about the guy nobody wanted anything to do with. This speaks volumes about Barnabas, doesn't it? The son of encouragement. It speaks volumes. Barnabas and Paul are the main players in the rest of what we're going to read for a little while. They're the, they're the main guys, but there's these three other guys. So let's Let's take a look at who they are. There was Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black, so most scholars think this man had dark skin. Some people argue that this was Simeon, which we read earlier, the Cyrenian, that's that area from Libya, the man who was forced to carry Jesus' cross in Luke 23, 26. And you can also read about that in Matthew 27-something. They think this might be the guy, and I think there's a reasonable support for that argument. We can't know for certain, but Cyrenians were people of dark skin, being from Africa. This guy has dark skin, and, and Luke, he is a Cyrenian, if it's the same guy. He was specifically named in Luke and Matthew in the Gospels. Why in the world would they specifically name somebody, if not for the fact that when those Gospels came out, that somebody would still be recognizable? Like, we can see him. We know who he is. And you know who would be recognizable? A leader in the church in Antioch. So maybe this is the same guy. Finally, that particular Cyrenian was in Jerusalem, carried Jesus' crossbeam, and had a front row seat to the crucifixion. Right? It, it would be pretty remarkable if he was among the some people from Cyrene and Cyprus, who later shared the gospel in Antioch and proclaimed the gospel. We can't know for sure. At the end of the day, we have no idea, right? No clue. 
But if that's the same guy, what a remarkable witness for the mission of the gospel. Would that not be amazing? That would be incredible. Next, there's this guy named Lucius of, wait a minute, Cyrene. How about that? Maybe he was one of the brothers who planted this church. Maybe he was one that went and shared the gospel with them. Paul mentions a Lucius in Romans 16, 21. We do not know if he's the same guy. We don't really have a way to solidly connect them, but it seems reasonable that maybe that's one of the co-workers that Paul knew. They're friends. These guys are working for the kingdom. They know each other. Some people argue, and I don't know about this. This one's pretty loose, that this guy might be Luke, the physician, the guy who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. I mean, that, that's just a guess, but that'd be pretty remarkable. We don't know. Finally, there's this guy named Manian, and he's the one that I'm the most interested in. This guy, it says in the CSB translation, is a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Okay, that, that word that's close friend could be foster brother or brought up with, brought up together, adopted half-brother of Herod the Tetrarch, a.k.a. Herod Antipas. Okay, so this half-brother friend, this close, like-a-brother friend, was friends with the guy who beheaded John the Baptist and who was a part of Jesus' trial to cause Jesus to go to the cross. If he was raised in the same house as a foster brother, he was raised in the house of Herod the Great, the man who killed all the babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. That guy, Manian. That's his upbringing. That's, he probably had this great pedigree because of his connections to all of this. And where do we see him? Not with any of that, but a leader worshiping Jesus in this church in Antioch. That's amazing to me. That's fascinating to me. God uses all types and all backgrounds from all walks of life to do his mission in the world. He utilizes all these people from all these crazy places, from these most unlikely things that we would never expect because the Holy Spirit equips those he calls And he calls some people from some weird backgrounds, doesn't he? From some really interesting places. And maybe this describes some of you. Some of us. Maybe we've been called from some pretty interesting and unlikely backgrounds to serve the Lord. Now that we see those interesting called leaders, now that we know who they are, what were they doing? Look with me to verses 2 and 3, Acts 13, 2 and 3. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them. Then after they fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them and sent them out. Okay, they were worshiping and fasting and praying together in the church. Seems like a pretty good thing for leaders to be doing, isn't it? If they want to hear from the Holy Spirit, how, how would we do that? Worship and pray and fast. I hear stories of church leaders who almost never pray. They just say, I, I, I almost never pray. Or that's just not an area that's a very important part of my life, so I don't pray. I've encountered many, many, many 
pastors who say, I almost never pray. I've heard of church staffs that spend no time together. They hardly ever connect. They're hardly ever together, and they're certainly not praying together. I know of churches where the preacher comes out of the back in some green room. He wasn't there with the church worshiping with them. He came out onto the stage from some other place where he was back having a soda before he got started. This is why our church staff spends time together praying. We pray during our meetings and before and after our worship services. We prayed this morning. We'll pray after. Sometimes we have meetings just to pray. We come together and we pray. This is why we're up here in the front. I don't know if you've noticed. We're up here in the front worshiping with you. If we do two services or 25 services, we'll be here worshiping with the church because that's where leaders should be, right? And you probably have thought, well, I don't seem, it doesn't seem like you guys fast a lot, which is probably true, and we need to work on that. Leaders in your church probably need to work on it a little more fasting as we pray. We, need, we do. Okay, but here's the thing. You're all giggling like we're the chubby ones, but this isn't just for the staff. It's for anybody who's taking serious the church and, and being a part. We need to be in prayer. Right now, there's people in this prayer room right over here praying for us during the service. You could join them at any point and pray. Right On Wednesday nights, some of our member men, we gather together to, to talk about things of life and pray together. It's important. This is where leaders should be, in prayer and in worship. And we could all be doing a little more of that, couldn't we? A little more prayer, a little more worship. Maybe we could all be doing some fasting. So that's what they were doing. And then the Holy Spirit gives these Antiochian leaders in this church instructions to send out Barnabas and Paul. And I, we always like to say, man, they sent their best. But if the Holy Spirit would have picked any different combination of those five, we still would have said they sent their best. These men were faithful, they were ready, they were available, and they were all willing to go. But for this particular mission, it was Paul and Barnabas. God will equip those he calls. That's true of us. Hopefully it's true of us. If we're faithful, he can call any one of us in here, no matter our age, no matter our background, to serve his mission as he sees fit, and he will equip us to do it. So let us be in prayer and worship and fasting and see what God might do. And then after he says, hey, set these ones apart, after the Holy Spirit identified them, what did they do? They prayed and they fasted and they worshiped some more. And then laid hands on them as a sign of saying, we're with you in solidarity and here is blessing. And then they sent them out to do the work. When the Holy Spirit calls, churches should be sending the called. Now, I appreciate missionary sending organizations. I appreciate church planting organizations that should be coming alongside to do the church work with the church. But who sends the missionaries? Who sends the church planters? Who sends the called? Churches. So I am pleading with God that he would call men and women and families from this church to do radical work, maybe here in this mission field or somewhere else, 
to do faithful, sacrificial, carry your cross, give up the, the good of the world and all the wonderful things to build your own kingdom and go and build a kingdom for God, even if it costs you all your finances and all your status and maybe even your life. I'm praying that God would call from us those he would send to the ends of the earth to proclaim his gospel for his glory. And I pray that our church gets behind them and supports them in prayer and finances and everything else they need. I don't know who they are. I know when we were worshiping, I could hear little voices just belting out, I want to go, send me. I want to be your hands and feet. These songs we're singing. And I could hear some older folks singing that, and I'm just thinking, Lord, answer those prayers in song and let us get behind them and send them. See, but it's not just some arbitrary sending, off you go. This is real work. This is spiritual work. This is kingdom work, and it's hard. And there's opposition, and there's challenges, and so the Holy Spirit has to set it up, and he has to equip it, and he he gets all of this in place and then sends it all in motion. He gets it all going and sends the missionaries right into it by his providence. Look at verse 4. It just says the church sent him, but then verse 4 says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Man, okay, so the Holy Spirit's still involved. And where did they go? Where did he send them? Oh, wow, how about that? They went to Cyprus. They went to the port town and sailed to Cyprus. Could it be that that's where Barnabas was from? He went home. And a lot of us, we just seem to neglect the fact that where we live is a mission field. Maybe where we're from is a mission field. Wherever God has put you could be a mission field. What doors, what connections has he opened up? They had one. Maybe there was other people there from Cyprus that said, you can go stay with my aunt. Hey, I have a connection for you in this city, in that city. Hey, there seems to be some open doors. Go there. It's very possible. All we know for sure is that God had it all worked out. He had it all set up. Into verse 5 it says, they also had this assistant. They had this, this young man named John, John Mark. That's referring to Barnabas' nephew, a family member who, who they had recently brought back from Jerusalem. And he says, I want to go and be a part of this. Don't miss the fact that he was along on this journey. We always get excited about Barnabas and, and Paul, but there's John Mark, the assistant, the one helping them, the one called, the one who's gone. Maybe he didn't do a lot of the talking. Maybe he wasn't doing the heralding, but he was assisting. He was helping. He was there somehow. And maybe some of you can assist and help and be there somehow. Maybe it's not always what you think. I bet each and every one of us in some way or another could be on the mission of God, even as an assistant, even as the helper. How might God be calling you to that? There's so many ways to be an assistant. And then by the providence of God, just working out this whole thing, they get this meeting with the proconsul. That's like a governor. It's the fancy name for governor here. And the Holy Spirit sets it all up. I mean, how in the world? That's amazing, right? So he gets it all set up. It's teed up. The proconsul's name was Sergius Paulus. But Sergius Paulus had a counselor who went by two names. He had two names. Likely, his real name was Bar-Jesus, which is Hebrew for, ironically, son of Jesus. Not, he wasn't actually Jesus' biological son, but that's his name. His stage name, however, was Elimus, which means sorcerer or magician. Elimus, the sorcerer, was a Jewish false prophet. 
probably the kind who was telling people they could see the future, had some special revelation of God and everybody should do it. He's a false prophet in some way, right? And that's probably why the pro-council had him on his staff as like a counselor. He's there with the pro-council. Pro-council, tell me what's going on here and guide me here and give me this and tell me that. Sorcery is against the Jewish law. That didn't seem to be a problem for Elimus the sorcerer. He's like, whatever, I don't care about God, obviously, if I'm going to break his laws in said these ways and, and do these things that are against what he wants. So Paul and Barnabas get the opportunity to share the gospel. Praise the Lord. The amazing stuff that Jesus has done with this Sergius Paulus guy, which is great. But then right there is this Elimus, the sorcerer, opposing them and trying to turn the pro-council away from the faith. Who was Elimus opposing? Paul and Barnabas? No. God. He was opposing God. He was fighting against God. This is sometimes why we get nervous to share the gospel, isn't it? Man, what if there's some opposition? What if they have a hard question I can't answer? What if somebody tells them, you know, oh, you don't want to be around those Christians. You don't want to do this. You don't want to do that. That stuff happens, right? What if there's opposition? Well, there might be. There probably will be. And I'm not sure we can all address it the way Paul did. But we do need to trust God and be bold when called upon to do so. Right? That's what it means to love and care for the lost. Paul clearly was very concerned about Sergius Paulus. He didn't want there to be any opposition because this man's soul was at stake. I think he was also concerned about Elimus the sorcerer. This is what it means to speak truth in love that you love the people, that you love the reason that you're sharing truth. Now, this is complicated because in this particular case, this Elimus guy was a wolf, and Sergius Paulus was his prey. And this stuff happens. We've had individuals, false prophets, false teachers, standing right in the middle of our lobby on a Sunday morning as you're passing by, just wanting to tell you something, and praise the Lord, even just a few weeks ago, some of our faithful members here were able to talk to that person and say, this is false and this is wrong. We were able to deal with it. It happens. There is regular opposition to what God is doing in his mission. This man who claimed to see the future did not see what was coming. Take a look at Acts 13, 9 through 11. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elimus and said, now, I don't know if he was yelling at him or if he was gentle and whispering, but the truth is the truth either way. So I read it with a little bit more force earlier. Now let's read it the other way. He looked straight at Elimus and he said, you're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You son of a devil, an enemy of all that's right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look. You're going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Was Paul sad for him, concerned for him? Maybe. Or maybe he was angry. Immediately in the midst, immediately a mist and a darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The man who could see the future, or at least claim to, who knew all these things from God, was now blind and had to be led around. He didn't see it. This is a shocking picture of this man's spiritual state. Blindness. The Bible makes it clear that anyone who rejects God is blind to the truth, just like this man. Yeah, but God opens eyes so that people can see. 
and they can hear the truth. This is what happened to Paul, who was Saul, when Jesus got a hold of him. This is what happened to Sergius Paulus. Look at verse 12. Then, when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed. Now, don't be tempted to think it was because this guy suddenly went blind. Keep reading. Because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was saved. He believed. Maybe this morning you're hearing this message for the first time. right? You're hearing about Jesus. We're preaching this. And what are we preaching? Well, we're preaching the exact same message, I pray, that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. <clears throat> what is that? Well, we have it written down for us. We can read it in His Word. We're all sinners. Right? And the punishment for our sin against the Holy God is death and separation from God which is what we all deserve, but by God's mercy, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to trade our sins for His righteousness, and then our sin was put on Him, and God was crushed under the wrath of God and crucified on the cross in our place, but on the third day, God raised Him from the dead, thus putting death to death and proving that Jesus was who He said He was. And Jesus said, if we let Him call all the shots in our life, if we profess that He is Lord and believe that He was raised from the dead... We can be adopted as his children. We can be saved. That's the message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. That's the message that we preach. Both Elimus and Sergius Paulus heard the gospel. One opposed it. One believed. How about you? Which is it? Most of us in here have believed like Sergius Paulus. Praise the Lord. We've come from unlikely places, and we've become Christians, and now the question is, how are we going to be used by God? When I'm in heaven, I know we're going to be worshiping Jesus all the time. It's going to be awesome, but I'm really hopeful that I, there's this moment, there's this time when we get to share our stories about how we serve God for the purpose of glorifying God and praising Him, because I want to know what came of Sergius Paulus. I want to know how he ended up serving the Lord. Did he become like these other five guys? Did he share the gospel with people? Did he go on missions? What did he do? What did the Holy Spirit call this guy to do? I would love to know. If there's a time of sharing like that, to give God glory, to to make him known when we're in heaven, will your story glorify God? What will it look like? How will it bring him much glory and joy? What do you want your story to be for the Lord? What could that look like for you? Is the Holy Spirit calling you in some way this morning, whispering in your ear, putting some of this, this, little, this little push on you? Hey, there's something I have for you. Is the Holy Spirit drawing, maybe sharing the gospel with that person, inviting this person to church, maybe going into a, a world a million miles away, it would seem, where they have no gospel in their own language. And the threat of danger on every front. Is God calling you to that? What is it? I don't know. There was a time in my ministry when I used to push, I mean push, everyone toward the mission field, here, there, everywhere. I would try to press everyone into sharing the gospel with their neighbor and sharing the gospel with, you know, the the person taking your order at Burger King. and, And there was all this guilt and all this push, but I was wrong. I was wrong. You cannot be guilted. You shouldn't be guilted into serving the Lord. The Holy Spirit's going to have to call you. 
Because when he calls, then he equips in his timing. When he calls, he sets up the mission for your successful engagement in it, for whatever it's going to look like. When he calls, there's fruit. If the Holy Spirit is calling you, which I hope he is, I'm begging that God would use us for his mission. Then you've got a decision. How how will you go? How will you answer? It's my prayer. God is calling all of us in one way or another and equipping us in one way or another. And I'm praying that Redeeming Life would, would send out into our neighborhoods, right here, into the workplaces, into the, and then send around the world. I'm just praying that Redeeming Life would have the opportunity to get behind that and support the work like the Holy Spirit did in Antioch. That's my prayer. Because I have no power to, to push us all out. I'm hoping maybe you will join me in this prayer for yourself and for our church. Maybe for your kids. Man, so often, I'm a parent, I get it. We don't want to send our kids to danger. Maybe God's sending them. Maybe for your parents. Maybe for you. I don't know. The only way we're going to know is if the Holy Spirit might speak to us through prayer and worship and all the stuff that we're seeing like in this text. And it's my prayer that we are a church like the church in Antioch, faithful in that way. So will you join me in this prayer? Let's pray. Lord, I'm just begging, I'm asking, I'm pleading with you, Lord, send us. Send us to our neighbor's house. Send us to our coworkers boldly to say, hey, let's chat. Come to church. Send us around the world to proclaim your gospel, other states, other cities, other places. Lord, but don't let us miss that where we live is a mission field. You've opened so many opportunities and doors. Lord, so few bend the knee and praise you as Lord here. So Lord, send us here. Stir in us here. And God, I pray that you would bring many, many, many more missionaries here where we are, that your word would be proclaimed, that people would be saved, that truth would be heralded in a crazy, mixed-up world where everyone seems hopeless and afraid. Lord, bring hope here. Bring truth here, starting right in our own souls with us. And then it would go from here. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you that we can be in prayer and worship with you even right now. And you might call us to radical, amazing things. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.